Blog Talk Radio. The music you just heard was the theme music for the John Wayne movie, The High and the Mighty, back in 1955. It won an Academy Award for Best Song. This score was conducted by Victor Young. Good evening, aviation family from around the world. Yes, that's right, around the world, with over 50 countries tuning us in via satellite. The radio show hopes you're having a wonderful new year and and it will continue beyond 2022. Tonight we're trying something different, a special broadcast of aviation stories sprinkled with a few great songs. We've titled these broadcasts, All the Aviation Stories Worth Listening to. Sunday evening at 6 p.m. seems like a good time to broadcast the show and And a special request to our listeners, if you have a story of your own that you would like to share 
with us and the world, just send them to uh, host at EALradioshow.com. That's host at EALradioshow.com. Now let's listen to our first story, followed by a popular song from the past. Oh, by the way, we thought we'd start our music by playing songs from states. So songs from Texas will be played during tonight's broadcast. Enjoy the story. Howard Hughes was everywhere during the most integral years of aviation and show business. The pilot, engineer, movie producer, and businessman was influential in many fields, including the progression of aviation. One of the several factors that he would eventually inspire was the Lockheed L-1049 Super Constellation Program. After purchasing a majority share of TWA in 1939, Hughes had a meeting with key Lockheed Corporation figures, Chief Engineer Hall Hibbard, Chief Research Engineer Kelly Johnson, and President Robert Gross listened to the aviator's request. The two parties left the meeting with even greater ambitions than they entered with. The rendezvous led to the formation of the Lockheed Constellation. Notably, Hughes was keen to grab a bigger slice of the market with this aircraft. As a result, he required outright secrecy with the program and asked Lockheed not to sell the plane to any other transcontinental carrier until his airline had 35 units delivered. Hughes outlined the initial performance specifications, but it was Lockheed that would design the sleek, distinctive, now iconic aircraft. It was a critical turning point for Lockheed. As Hibbard said, up to that time we were sort of small-time guys, but when we got to the Constellation, we had to be big-time guys. We had to be right, and we had to be good. Being good meant introducing new features previously unseen on passenger planes, Lockheed Martin shares. The Constellation would offer the first hydraulically boosted power controls, aviation's equivalent of power steering. It would be faster than the most World War II fighters at 350 miles per hour. And using award-winning technology pioneered by Lockheed a few years earlier, it would feature a pressurized cabin for 44 passengers that allowed the plane to fly faster and above 90% of weather disturbances, what Constellation regulars would come to call smooth sailing. The Lockheed Constellation, nicknamed Connie, was introduced in 1943 with the United States Air Force uh, playing the important role in World War II. However, TWA became the first commercial operator just two years later. It was the first widespread airliner with pressurization in its cabin. The propeller-driven four-engine airliner was a revolution in the industry. Following its entry uh, to service, passengers would fly well above poor weather for the first time in aviation history. Therefore, flight operations became safer and easier to coordinate. In total, 856 Connies were built. Connie helped to uh, achieve many groundbreaking feats. For instance, 
the type became the first commercial plane to fly above 12,500 feet. This aspect helped it con- conduct the first nonstop coast-to-coast commercial flight. In the year that the type was introduced, Lockheed started looking at stretch versions. One such variant was the L749, which would be extended by 18 feet. The super constellation at the turn of the 1950s, Lockheed repurchased the XC-69 Constellation prototype model from the Hughes Tool Company. The firm lengthened it by 18 feet to form the structure for the L-1049 Super Constellation. Connie Survivor shares that more than 550 design changes were made to the plane. It first flew on July 14, 1951, before receiving a type certificate on November 29, 1951. The first production aircraft held registration November 6203 Charlie, and it was introduced with Eastern Airlines on December 17, 1951. Overall, 579 of the types were produced between 1951 and 1958. Commercial airlines flew 259 planes, while the military deployed 320, with the Navy holding the most of the units. There were several advancements with the introduction of the Super Constellation. Reclining seats, air conditioning, and extra lavatories on board were some key additions. Lockheed Martin notes that it was at least twice as fuel-efficient as the preliminary jets that were just around the corner. The efficiency can even hold up against some aircraft introduced in recent times. At least 18 variants of the L-1049 were designed and planned. 48 units of the L-1049C, the civilian version of the military L-1049B, were produced. A pilot, co-pilot, navigator, radio operator, and flight engineer made up the five-person crew. Meanwhile, between 47 and 106 passengers uh, could could, uh, fit in the cabin. Iberia, Eastern, TWA, KLM, TransCanada Airlines, Qantas, Air India, PIA, Avianca, Lania Aeropotha, Venezuela, and Cubana were all fans of the Super Constellation. The 1049C had a length of 113 feet and 7 inches and a wingspan of 123 feet and a height of 24 feet 9 inches. Four Wright R3350 972TC18DA1 duplex cyclone engines helped it reach a maximum speed of 330 miles per hour and a range of 4,400 80 nautical miles. There were other popular variances uh, across the board. For instance, the first Lockheed L-1049G was delivered to Lufthansa in the airline's first month of activity. The aircraft carried 77 passengers and could reach a cruise of up to 530 uh, kilometers or 330 miles per hour. 
The model conducted the flag carry of Germany's first intercontinental flight, a journey from Hamburg to New York via Dusseldorf and Shannon. The plane held Lufthansa open doors. The success of the Boeing 707 Douglas DC-8 led to the decline of the Super Constellation. The last US L-1049 was conducted by Eastern Airlines in February 1968. Following this, the final commercial L-1049 flight was in 1993. This was due to the FAA banning all carriers from the Dominican Republic that flew this type. The, these carriers were the last to commercially operate the plane. In the forces, in the forces, the last U.S. military super constellation to fly was in June of 1982. India was the last global military operator, retiring all of its units by 1983. Ultimately, the plane had pushed the boundaries while the aviation industry was still developing. It became expensive to operate the plane compared to jet alternatives that were emerging. The jet would go on to rule the transcontinental and wider long-range market in the second half of the 20th century. What are your thoughts about the Lockheed L-1049 Super Constellation? What do you make of the plane's operations over the years? Let us know what you think of the aircraft and its legacy in the, on the show. If you don't mind calling in, we'd love to hear from you. Oh, God. 
Pioneer Florida Airman, Jack R. Hunt. First President of Embry-Riddle University. Known as the father of the modern university, Jack R. Hunt was considered to be a visionary pioneer of aviation higher learning. As the first president of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, Hunt transformed a small for-profit corporation into the only nonprofit, fully accredited university in the world exclusively dedicated to aviation and aerospace education. Under Hunt's guidance, Embry-Riddle grew from an institute with under 500 students in 1963 to a world-leading comprehensive university system with two residential campuses and over 100 teaching sites worldwide. Hunt established a very unique legacy in the aviation and aerospace industry, as well as a time-honored place of recognition in Emory-Riddle's history. Jack R. Hunt was born on May 1, 1918, in Iowa and raised in California. He joined the U.S. Navy in 1942, where he received cadet training in naval aviation, lighter than air, and then officer training as a naval aviator, heavier than air, at Lakehurst, New Jersey. Throughout World War II, Hunt served as airship flight instructor and free balloon flight instructor at Moffett Field in California. He then became a commanding officer of the maintenance squadron, maintaining fleet airships. From 1943 and 47, he served as development officer for the ZX-11 airship anti-submarine warfare squadron and participated in a test in which an airship was used to prevent a nuclear submarine from attacking the Panama Canal. From 1955 and through 58, Hunt tested the weather tolerance of airships over several phases in which he flew airships into the worst weather conditions possible. In March of 1957, he commanded a ZPG-2 airship called the Snowbird. From March 4 through 16, a hunt and a crew of 14 carried out a nonstop flight that covered over 9,400 miles flying from South Weymouth, Massachusetts, to Europe, to Africa, and from the Canary Islands to Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, Florida, and Cuba before reaching its final destination in Key West in 264 hours and 14 minutes. The Snowbird set two world records for staying aloft longer and flying a greater distance without refueling than any other airship of any type. To this day, no blimp has surpassed these records. For his work, Hunt received the Distinguished Flying Cross in 1957 and in 1958 was presented the Harmon International Trophy by President Eisenhower. In 1958, Hunt retired from the Navy with the rank of, of commander. More than being an aviator, Hunt should be remembered for saving a small aviation school and building it into the world's leaving, leading aviation aerospace university. In 1963, Hunt became president 
of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical Institute, better known as ERAI. Located in Miami since 1939, ERAI faced a revenue crisis, low student enrollments, and lacked its own flight line. In 1965, uh, Hunt relocated Embry-Riddle to Daytona Beach, Florida, where not only did the school have a flight line, but it had room to expand to 5,000 students. Despite numerous financial difficulties that nearly bankrupted the school, Hunt helped steer the institution out of financial danger, constructed academic complexes, and pushed to make Embry-Riddle more than just a flight training school. Hunt convinced the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools to give ERAI accreditation as a special purpose institution. In 1970, ERAI became Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, ERAU. Enrollment in 1965 was 462, with an operating budget of $375,000. In 1970, enrollment was 1,664, with an operating budget of nearly $4 million. By the early 1980s, over 5,000 students matriculated at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. In the 1960s, Hunt also conceived of the idea to provide training at military installations, allowing military personnel to the opportunity to take college credit courses. In 1970, Embry-Riddle established residence centers at Fort Rucker, Alabama, and Fort Stewart, Hunter, Georgia, and Fort Walters in Texas. By the 1980s, such residence centers were found in Europe, the Middle East, as well as much of the continental United States, educating thousands of individuals. All of this laid the foundations for the present worldwide Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University campus. In 1978, Hunt expanded ERAU further by taking over a defunct college and establishing a residential campus at Prescott, Arizona that today still offers quality training to over 1,000 students a year. In his quest to build a modern university, Hunt insisted, we cannot afford to be woofus birds. The woofus bird always flies backwards to see where he's been. We must be forward-looking and forward-thinking. By the time of his death in 1984, Hunt's vision and his energy saved the school from languishing, if not dying, in Miami. A real hero. I haven't got a thing to call my own Though I'm out of money, I'm a millionaire I still have my home in San Antonio
727. Why was it built? When the idea of building a rear-mounted three-jet engine aircraft first came about, Boeing was still struggling to build the 707. Adding to the challenge was that some airlines wanted four-engine jets while others wanted a twin. Here's how the 727 came about and why Boeing decided to build it. The inspiration behind the Boeing 727 was the aim to create an aircraft that could operate out of smaller airports that had short runways not suitable for larger aircraft like the Boeing 707. Boeing's new plane needed to be able to descend quickly into airports while avoiding buildings and other obstacles close to the runway. To achieve this, Boeing developed a large and sophisticated flap system to provide extra lift at low speeds. In another first, the 727 came with a small gas turbine engine auxiliary power unit or APU that eliminated the need for a ground power supply to start the engines. This innovation turned out to be a big selling point for airlines operating in less developed countries. At the same time, Boeing recognized the potential of this aircraft in the late 1950s. Rival Douglas was working on the DC-9. Around the same time over Europe, the British Aircraft Corporation was designing the BAC-111. Knowing they needed to sell a minimum of 200 aircraft to make the 727 a success, Boeing announced on December 5, 1960, that they'd received orders for a total of 40 aircraft from Eastern Airlines and United. By the time the aircraft made its first test flight in 1963, orders were still well below the break-even point. In a gamble to drum up business, Boeing sent the 727 on a tour of 26 countries where the aircraft clocked up an impressive 76,000 miles or 122,310 kilometers. In eerily similar circumstances of what happened with the Boeing 737 MAX, it appears as though Boeing rolled out the aircraft without giving pilots sufficient training. By November 1965, Boeing had witnessed three of its 727-100 aircraft crash within three months of each other, killing a total of 131 people. Investigators looking into the crashes discovered that some pilots did not fully understand the flap system 
and were therefore allowing the planes to descend at too great a speed. Despite calls from some politicians to ground the 727, Boeing and the Flight Safety Board were adamant that nothing was wrong with the plane. The authorities did, however, come out and say that 727 pilots needed more training and that Boeing should modify the flight manual procedures regarding the final approach. Despite all the reassurances that it was a safe aircraft to fly in, passengers boycotted the plane for a good six months until confidence in the aircraft returned. Boeing's original production run was for 250 aircraft, but the larger 189-passenger 727-200 version proved so popular that the Renton factory built 1,832 of the jets, far surpassing the original target. After 22 years in production, the final Boeing 727, a 727-200F model, was delivered to Federal Express in September of 1984. By 2003, nearly all airlines had retired the loud, thirsty planes in favor of quieter, more fuel-efficient aircraft like the 737 and larger Boeing 757. Despite its precarious start in life, the Boeing 727 ended up being one of the best-selling commercial jets in aviation history. Hopefully, a similar turnaround and redemption can happen for its current 737 MAX. If you like this video, please like and subscribe to the Simple Flying channel and be sure to click the notification bell. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, I fell in love with a Mexican girl. Nighttime would find me in Rose's cantina, music would play and Felina would whirl. Blacker than night were the eyes of Felina, wicked and evil while casting a spell. My love was deep for this Mexican maiden I was in love but in vain I could tell One night a wild young cowboy came in Wild as the West Texas wind Dashing and daring a drink he was sharing With wicked Felina, the girl that I love So in anger I challenged his right for the love of this maiden Down with his hand for the gun that he wore My challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat The handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor Out through the back door of roses I ran Out where the horses were like it could run up on its back and away I did ride just as fast as I could from the west Texas town of El Paso back to the badlands of New Mexico back in El Paso my life would be worthless everything's gone in life nothing is left it's been so long since I've seen the young maiden my love is stronger than my fear of death I saddle up and away I did go Riding alone in the dark May 
Maybe tomorrow a bullet may find me Tonight nothing's worse than this pain in my heart And at last here I am on the hill overlooking El Paso I can see Rosa's cantina below My love is strong and it pushes me onward Down off the hill to Polina I go Off to my right I see five mounted cowboys Off to my left right a dozen or more Shouting and shooting I can't let them catch me I have to make it to Rose's back door Something is dreadfully wrong for I feel A deep burning pain in my side Though I am trying to stay in the saddle I'm getting weary, unable to ride But my love for the leader is strong And I rise where I fall Though I am weary, I can't stop to rest I see the white puff of smoke from the rifle I feel the bullet go deep in my chest From out of nowhere, Felina has found me Kissing my cheek as she kneels by my side Cradled by two loving arms that I'll die for One little kiss and Felina Did you ever wonder about the boundaries of space? For much of the world, the boundary to space is considered the imaginary Carmen line, which starts around 62 miles above Earth, whereas the FAA considers space starting 50 miles above Earth and those that fly above that level as astronauts. The answer lies from either a scientific, commercial, or legal viewpoint. Some scientists believe space to be the boundary line at 435 miles high, the base of the exosphere, which the National Aeronautics and Space Administration defines as the outermost layer of the atmosphere. The Kármán line is the internationally recognized boundary to space set by the Federation Aeronautiki International an international aeronautics recording, a record-keeping body. Theodore von Karman, an engineer and mathematician in the 50s, calculated the altitude at which lift from the air can no longer keep winged aircraft aloft. A practical way to consider where space begins is by considering the type of vehicle needed to fly. Airplanes can fly in the Earth's atmosphere because air pressure provides lift to the aircraft's wings. However, to get to space, a spacecraft needs propulsion to get past the Kármán line. However, people won't be able to tell the difference between being 50 miles and 62 miles above Earth. On both trips, passengers experience a few minutes of weightlessness. Because of the discrepancy of just where space begins, the IAASS, International Association for the Advancement of Space Safety, 
has advocated for considering three zones rather than just aerospace and outer space, with the middle space, which it calls near space, being subject to a different set of rules than air or space travel. The outfit considers near space to be from around 11 miles to around 99 miles above sea level. Near space includes suborbital flight. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 states that all countries are free to explore outer space with no nation able to stake a claim. There are no rules governing how high a spacecraft can go. Getting consensus treaties approved to define where space is has been difficult because of the uncertainty of the future of space travel. Amarillo by morning Up from San Antonio Everything that I've got Is just what I've got on When the sun is high in that Texas sky I'll be bucking at the county fair Amarillo by morning Amarillo I'll be there They took my saddle in Houston Broke my leg in Santa Fe I lost me a wife and a girlfriend Somewhere along the way But I'll be looking for eight When they pull that gate And I hope that judge ain't blind Amarillo by morning Amarillo on my mind San Everything that I've got is just what I've got on. I ain't got a dime, but what I've got is mine. I ain't rich, but Lord, I'm free. Amarillo by morning, Amarillo's where I'll be. Amarillo by morning, Amarillo's where I'll be. Over the past 12 years, U.S. airlines have carried more than 8 billion passengers without a fatal crash. Statistics show that in recent years, the riskiest part of any airline trip in the U.S. is when the aircraft wheels are on the ground, on runways or taxiways. This achievement comes from a sweeping safety reassessment, a virtual revolution in thinking, sparked by a small band of senior federal regulators, top industry executives, and pilots 
union leaders after a series of high-profile fatal crashes in the mid-1990s. To combat common hazards, they teamed up to launch voluntary incident reporting programs with carriers sharing data and no punishment for airline or aviators when mistakes were uncovered. By the end of the 1990s, the FAA, Boeing, labor representatives, and the largest U.S. airline trade association all endorsed the unified data-driven safety agenda. Together, they devised steps to make it happen. Their approach was simple in its fundamentals, but wickedly difficult to implement at the start, requiring unprecedented levels of trust among the participants. During the early stages, representatives of pilots and carriers grudgingly agreed to share information with each other, as well as with the government regarding budding hazards and near crashes. Tentative cooperation was dependent on FAA pledges that good faith mistakes and procedural violations wouldn't result in enforcement actions. The results have been remarkable. In 1996, before the safety reboot began, U.S. carriers had a fatal accident rate of roughly one crash for every two million departures. That year alone, more than 350 people died in domestic airline accidents, including 230 in the infamous fuel tank explosion on TWA Flight 800 that sucked scores of passengers out of the fractured fuselage. Within 10 years, the fatal accident rate had been reduced by more than 80%. Today's travelers are benefiting from another decade plus of improved safety and the fatality rate has been driven down to one for every 120 million departures. The single passenger death not a crash, in the past dozen years was from an engine fan blade coming apart during a 2018 flight. Leaps in technology played a role dramatically enhancing jet engines' uh, reliability. Electrical and other aircraft systems became more durable and trouble-free due to upgraded design, uh, designs and components improvements in cockpit automation provided stronger safeguards against crew errors while increasingly sophisticated ground-based simulators made aviatrix training more rigorous and realistic. The astonishing safety record in the U.S. stems most of all from, an, from, from, from a, a sustained commitment to what was at first a controversial idea. Together, government and industry experts extracted safety lessons by analyzing huge volumes of flight data and and combing through tons of thousands of detailed reports filed annually by pilots and eventually mechanics and air traffic controllers. Response led to voluntary industry improvements rather than mandatory government regulations. Recently, Boeing's 737 MAX jet debacle has partly overshadowed the results of this safety revolution. 
two out-of-country MAX crashes less than five months apart in 2018 and 2019 created a crisis for the Chicago-based plane maker and rekindled public fears about commercial aviation. But those accidents involved overseas carriers and primarily foreign victims, leaving the safety record of domestic airlines intact. If accident rates had remained the same while global passenger traffic continued growing at projected rates on average, there would be at least one major jet crash a week by 2015, producing hundreds of fatalities somewhere around the globe. Thus, the principles set about developing new tactics to counter incipient dangers long before they turned into headline-grabbing tragedies. Ultimately, mechanics and air traffic controllers embraced similar self-reporting programs. It was an incredible breakthrough, according to a former engineer at Delta. We actually patted people on the back for divulging mistakes. But if management found it and you didn't, then you could lose your job. Early successes reveal common pilot errors, such as veering from assigned altitudes due to distractions or failing to properly position wing flaps and other flight control surfaces for takeoffs. Voluntary revisions to internal airline rules proved faster and less obtrusive than changes imposed by regulators. Airlines later developed more complex solutions to prevent dangerous piloting errors in which planes approach runways too fast, descended too rapidly, or landed too far down runways to brake safely. Strict self-imposed rules by carriers required crews to abandon approaches under such conditions, leaving enough time to safely climb away from the field. Part of the industry's motivation was self-preservation. A lone jumbo jet crash with mass fatalities can amount to a financial hit of nearly $1 billion, including insurance payouts, additional legal liabilities, lost business, and reputational damage. In February of 2009, distracted and inadequate, inadequately trained pilots of a Colgan Air turboprop failed to recover from a stall approaching the Buffalo, New York airport. The otherwise perfectly functioning aircraft plunged to the ground, killing 50 people. That was the last deadly U.S. accident until April 2018 when a fan blade on a Southwest Airlines jet ruptured at 32,000 feet. The engine's front cover was blown off and shrapnel punctured the fuselage. The plane landed safely, but a passenger seated by a window sustained fatal injuries. There have been no fatalities on U.S. carriers since then. All told, the FAA has established a total of 10 separate voluntary reporting or data sharing programs covering everyone from airport workers to FAA engineers to technicians who maintain the agency's traffic control equipment. Voluntary changes adopted in the U.S. include, among other things, more extensive pilot training to understand warning signs when flight control computers are set improperly or when airplanes are approaching an incorrect runway.
how to adjust engine settings to prevent internal ice buildup, and using cockpit radars more effectively to avoid turbulence in clear weather. Over the years, airlines also have refined data systems to help spot troublesome engine reliability troubles earlier and alleviate hazards posed by pilot fatigue. From Europe to Asia to Latin America, everybody is now trying to copy the U.S. Despite the sterling record of U.S. airlines, the FAA has stressed the need to expand voluntary reporting to include the design and manufacture of jetliners in order to shore up public confidence in the wake of the 737 MAX tragedies. No matter what we have done in the past or what we are doing now, that's never going to be good enough. I know that she remembers 
Well, folks, that's our show for tonight. We hope you have enjoyed the stories and music we thought worth listening to. Tune us in next Sunday, January 16th at 6 p.m. Tell your friends about these broadcasts, and remember, if you have a story, no matter the length, jot it down and send to host at EALradioshow.com. That's host at EALradioshow.com. We'll put it on the air. Now, we'll ask Merle Haggard to sing us out tonight and uh, with his beautiful song, Silver Wings. Merle penned this song while in flight as he looked out the window and saw the aircraft just below with the sun shining on its wings. Well, why don't we let Merle tell the rest of the story? Merle, it's all yours. And folks, see you again next week. show today and we do have a broadcast tomorrow Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time just uh, dial in and that uh, 
dial-in would be on your computer to listen, and that's www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. It's a talk show, so why not call us at area code 213-816-1611. Again, that's area code 213-816-1611. Good night.